2: In this episode of Right pack Radio, we're going to discuss all that publishing information going beyond just writing your book. Like, oh, I don't know, ancillaries, bisect codes, keywords, uh, um, promoting your work, and so forth. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Right pack Radio. This is your host and producer and man who's lost his mind, David Allen Lucas, president of St. Louis Raiders Guild, president of Winding Trails Media, and... Um, general producer, and also with me today is...
3: Hello, I'm Kathleen Cayenne Bay. I write speculative fiction and uh, romance, and um, you can find my work in the Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy of the Year and the Best Science Fiction and Fantasy of the Year, Volume 12.
0: Excellent.
2: And with me, and by the way, I didn't say that was my lovely co-host. I always say that, and I skipped him for some reason.
3: I'm sorry. That's okay. They should know me by now. They
2: should. And also with us today is the... What rank will I make you now? How about the Lord oh, High Sky Admiral?
0: Lord High Sky Admiral? Wow, oh, that's Steam a uh, Yes, I'll take it. Sure. Uh, I am Brad R. Cook. I am the author of uh, Many a Thing. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just got back from vacation, so you can probably expect a bunch of things to start coming out of the publishing factory soon. So, you bon and uh, enjoy
2: And also with me today is the one who I tend to skip, my lovely wife, unfortunately, who probably is like, will you please shut up and please stop skipping me. Go ahead. Yes.
3: I'm Melanie Lucas. I found it... Yeah. Okay, yes. Uh, You do tend to skip, so I I was wondering if you're going to come to me first to just avoid that. But no. Um, I am trying to write a fantasy novel, and uh, since my... Condo was sold, and that was mostly settled. Hey, maybe I can get back to writing.
2: Yes. And also with us is the mistress of the of the visual arts and of the writing of fantasy.
4: Okay. Uh, my name is Jennifer Solzer. I'm a children's book author and illustrator. Uh, keep an eye out now for my new uh, anthology book, Companion to Threadcaster, which is my YA fantasy story. It should be available online and in local stores now, let's hope. Uh, Definitely online, though. So look on Amazon for... It's called The Curses, Short Stories from the World of Threadcast. And
2: also with us is the Madama Murder and Mayhem herself.
1: Fedora Amos. I write Victorian new tenants like Jack the Ripper in St. Louis and Mayhem at Buffalo Bills Wild West. And coming in 2019 from Five Star Same Gage is Have Your Ticket Punched by Frank James. Everyone knows that Frank James was the smarter brother of Jesse James, the one who managed to live. <laughs> I mean,
2: yeah, Frank James is the one who lived. Jesse James—he can't kind of get met with um, yes. a lovely assassin of his own friends. Come
1: Absolutely, on. I'm also president of Greater St. Louis Sisters in Crime, and if you happen to be in Indianapolis the third weekend in October, I am going to be at Magna Cum Murder.
2: I always knew I should have gone for a magnitude murder in in high school and college. Oh, well. (laughs) Sorry. Bad joke. However, with us today, also joining us again, finally, yay, happy to have her back, is the Madame Queen Social Butterfly of of Promoting Your Work.
3: Hello, everyone. I'm LaShonda Hoffman. I'm the publisher of Shades and Romance magazine, and I help create Social Butterflies. I'm currently working on my first...
2: Young adult book, and it's been interesting. <laughs> 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 Enough said. So, t- in today's episode, we were asked to talk about um, by one of the fan, by some of our fans, when we did a survey. You know, talk about the beyond the publishing in itself. Once you get your book out there, now what? And I don't mean go off and write your next book you and go off and. Do go out and please celebrate the fact that you've got a book coming out, but you can't just stop there. You know? And so today we're gonna to talk about there's so much more work that has to be done. I don't care if you're traditional published or if you are independent published or obviously a hybrid of the two, there's still more work. And so we're gonna to talk today, and not in any particular order of this, the nitty gritty of publishing a book, be it your ancillaries, your bisect codes, keywords, metadata catalogs, layouts, covers, and promotion. So with that, I guess let's go ahead and start off with, I've got a book written. If I'm going traditional, I know that the house where I'm getting published through will hire an illustrator. So I'm setting this up for Jen right off the bat. And But if I'm going independent published, I need to find an illustrator. And... Not all illustrators know how to do book covers, from what I understand, so let me kick that off. How do, what do I do? How do I start looking for book cover illustrators? Uh, what should I look for?
4: Well, decide if you want an illustrator to start with, and that's going uh, to depend on what, sort of what your genre and uh, topic is, like what your age group is. Illustrated covers tend to have a younger bend to them. So if you have YA or middle grade, or especially if you're writing children's chapter books or obviously picture books, you're going to want an illustrator. But uh, a um, a real classy illustrated cover is very popular. You just have to look at other contemporaries in your genre and see what they're putting out and if that's something you want. And if you're looking for an illustrator to do something like that, bring those samples with you when you are petitioning illustrators and just let them know which direction you're going if it's something that they can do. Because not every illustrator can do every form of artwork. Some of them are good at graphic or um, layout design, and some of them are more hand-drawn or painting. And it's, uh, it's, it's more complicated than just, oh, I have an illustrator, now make exactly what I need. So, that was the first part of your question. The second part was where you go to find an illustrator. Uh, if you want to work with someone local, see if you have a, a local art, um, artist guild. There's one in St. Louis. I know that lots of large cities have artist guilds. Other places to go, maybe uh, an art school. If there's an art school nearby, they might have a bulletin board or something. You can field some illustrators that are looking for work to build their portfolio. There are also websites you can go to, like Fiverr. I hate pointing people to Fiverr because it's not always a reliable place to get good work. But make sure that no matter what uh, illustrator that you engage with, that you make sure they give you samples first before you sign a contract with them. Because you don't want to be in a contract and then have to break that contract because they're not understanding you or not getting it, or just it's not in their skill set to be able to do what you want. So ask for samples up front. And uh, make sure you look at their portfolio and wh- that what they make is what you want. Don't try to force them out of their, uh, their established rut just because they say they can. If it doesn't look like something that they do normal, then you know that it's not their natural ability. They're stretching themselves to meet that. But, yeah, you know, and everything I'm saying, of course, is just sort of guidelines to follow. There's, a, there's an exception to every single rule. If you're cousin is really good at art and you're confident that they are gonna be a professional person, you can. Otherwise, don't hire your cousin or your nephew or your neighbor just because you know them. Uh, Don't give your book cover to someone as a favor because you think they'll be offended if you don't ask them to watercolor your front cover. Make sure that you are engaging professional illustrators Using either portfolio sites or Fiverr or SCBWI, which is the Society for Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, they have a a, a page up there for professionals listing their services. Or if you have a, there's a a book you like that really has the cover, look in the uh, the acknowledgments or in the copyright page and see who did that or what uh, house did that. And research and see if they are willing to do your book cover for you. It never hurts to ask someone. It might be out of your um, price range. Your know, price range, but they might also have referrals of places that you could go. Uh, most people are happy to talk to you, especially through something like email, as long as you're uh, following the rules that are posted on their websites or in their forums. So there's lots of options. Just make sure that you're not um, that you're getting what you need specifically for your project.
2: I'm gonna take this to, to I'm, I'm coming over to um, Fedora next here in a second. But I wanna just point Bethle out. You, does a oh well. I, I missed I didn't see her doing dovetail. I saw her phone in her hand, but I didn't see mm-hmm. the dovetail. My apologies. You, have two hands. you do have two hands. <laughs> I just saw the phone. I'm sorry. Shoot me. Bang. <laughs> All right. Um, real quick, if you're traditional published, the usually the house will hire a public hire a illustrator to make the cover. Mm-hmm. The cover may not look like anything you ever imagined, or have anything that you think of, as in the book. I'm not blowing traditional traditional down. I'm just telling you this is the way it is. Um, don't expect that illustrator to have read your book all the time. Yes. Um, and then I'm coming in here, and then are you do- you're, are you dovetailing? The
4: well, door. Are you? Are you? Own, right? you're <laughs> you <your> <laughs> oh, you guys.
2: She's you, going back to
4: topic. Okay. Um, you're, when you're doing a traditional and what you've done is you've sold the rights to your manuscript to right. them. You're trusting them. But you also have to trust that they are neck deep in the industry. Right. They know what is not only out now, but is what's coming out next. And it's always, always fight for your rights, for your opinion. Like, if they give you a cover that you absolutely hate for a variety of reasons... Um, then do you know write a letter to your agent or to your publisher and say, hey, I'm not happy with this. Can we get some more options or whatever? But in the end, uh, you have to also take their opinion into account because they know what they're doing. right? And that's also with illustrators. They know what they're doing. So uh, take their opinion into account. Voice your opinion so that you do get something you're happy with because everyone wants you to be happy. But sometimes, especially in traditional... They want you to be happy, but if you're not happy and the cover that they have is going to sell, they're going to side on the side that it's, it's going to sell. Right. And you'll usually get like three options that you can give uh, one, two, three rank to, or can you give a thumbs up or a thumbs down on this design? And they'll take your input into account when they're making their decisions. Excellent.
2: I'm really not sure which of the two ladies were, first, so let you guys find it out real fast.
4: Kathleen is uh, dovetailing with <clears throat> me, so let okay. her go. What is, like, the minimum you should expect to pay for a cover artist to do that work? Well, that entirely depends on how... It's uh, a big scale. Yeah. yeah. How, how much your artist that you're engaging is, let's say, how, how experienced they are and, um, and what you're asking of them. If you're asking for someone to, cover to draw a cover then you're paying for the time spent on the artwork and also layout and also cover specs and all of that. Um, so you can, if you're hiring from me for a fully illustrated cover, I would say an easy $500. If you are hiring from a big house, they might charge you a grand, 1500 you know, going up. Uh, if you're doing something where you want someone to build the cover, but you're building it out of stock photos that you buy off you know, an, an iStock image site, then you're paying for the artwork, mm-hmm. and you're paying for their time to lay out, and they might quote you something that's much cheaper than that because they know what they consider to be a fair use of their time, and that's one of the benefits of working one-on-one with people. Uh, Brad does that. He does the stock image layouts. Yeah. What do you, What is your, your gauge for...
0: Uh, to get a full cover that's going to cover the front and the back and be for books and like all that, you're probably looking at $150. Bucks.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, to get a front cover, uh, I'll shoot it to you for as low as like 30 bucks if it's super simple. Mm-hmm. But that's super simple.
4: So everyone look right up on his website to get yep. your cover. Not but I will tell you this. That's not a rule. Yeah, you know, no, that, no, rate, no, here's the thing. You can
0: get cheaper than me on Fiverr Mm-hmm. and you can get cheaper than me on a ton of other sites out there so if you're looking for just a straight up ebook cover there are a million places you can go to do that uh, if you're wanting to pay for an actual cover i highly recommend places like 99 designs or something like that or a guy like me that you can talk to or and then if you want something beautiful i recommend getting an illustrator involved because that will always make your cover cooler
4: I also want to point out that if you're self-publishing or you're indie publishing, a lot of times they have an option for a cover template mm-hmm. that you can build your own cover. Uh, try not to use those, because the point of having a template is that it's easily accessible for everyone to yes. use, and your cover is going to blend in with the throng of people who all have the exact same layout and the same images and the same font style on their cover.
0: See Jen and Mai's talk at GatewayCon. For more, <laughs> yes, GatewayCon occurring over Father's Day weekend next year.
2: <laughs> All right, um, over to Fedora, and then over to Lesonga.
1: One thing that indie persons do have as a bonus is that they can choose their title, <laughs> their titles, and their covers. Right. You may not have that luxury when you are traditionally published. You do not have necessarily final command over what your title is, and certainly no over what your your uh, cover is going to look like. And Jen said three. I was not offered three, believe me. I was offered one. This is the cover (laughs) of your book. We say (laughs) (laughs) yay. Three there. However, I wasn't given input because on the cover of Mayhem at Buffalo Bills Wild West, they had put a pistol in artwork, Uh a pistol and a pen and I complained about that. I said, a pistol? Annie Oakley is my shooter. She never used a pistol. She always used her rifle. And I complained about the pen, too, because what journalist is going to carry around and get a pen? Come on. They used a pencil. So they did change the gun to a rifle and the pen to a pencil. But that was all I got out of it, okay? So do not expect a lot. And my... Uh, My titles are so weird that they're probably going to use them, but (laughs) don't expect that necessarily to be the case if you are traditionally published, because they are going to be scouting lots and lots of titles, and they're going to try to pick the one that they think is going to sell, regardless of whether it has anything to do with your book at all.
2: Okay, you've got Lashanta, then Jen, Brad. I'm, I'm going,
4: I want to say something real brief on the title, thing. Okay, go
2: over to that, and then yeah, Oshanda, the, and then It's yeah.
4: uh, an anecdote from fellow right-pack person, uh, Meredith Tate. Mm. She is publishing three books coming out next year. Uh, Freedom Trials, The Red Labyrinth, and The Last Secret of Autumn Casterly? Something of Autumn Casterly. She fought very hard against all three of those titles, or, or against all the titles that they gave her. The small presses let her choose her, her title, mm-hmm. and they caved much more than the, the big traditional publishing presses. The, the third one, Autumn uh, Casterly, that is a... Harrigan? Uh, her- I'm not sure which one. Uh, but that's a big house. That's a, that's a big five house. And they were dead set on their title, and that's the one that went. Um, The ones that, like, the one that published Red Labyrinth, they asked her what her title was. She said so, and they said, that'll do, and they just went with it. And the one that published Freedom Trials, they fought for, like, months over how they wanted to change it. And she was insisting on trying to pick something that sounded more sci-fi because it's got, like, a Mm near-future apocalyptic bend to it. And they wanted to do something that sounded more contemporary. So they were butting heads, but she ended up winning. So take that into account, too, when you're choosing a publisher.
2: Which, by the way, that's why agents are, are also important, if you're going down that road.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Kicking the ball over to LaShonda now. Um,
3: I wanted to talk about rights to illustrations. I have dealt with a couple of people who've gotten people to illustrate their books, and then they're ready to do merchandising and stuff. And the mm-hmm. people are like, nope so what price do you need so you can move forward you know in the future and maybe you want to do some mugs maybe you want to do some t-shirts or some hats with these illustrations of your lovely little people and how does that work? Uh,
4: when you buy for me you buy first publishing rights which means that you have the right to publish on anything you want you know i anything that I give you the first publishing rights, Uh, You can put on mugs and t shirts and things like that to help recoup the costs of paying for me up front because I charge up front to individual people. Mm -hmm. Um, If it's just like, uh, but you have to look at your contract Mm -hmm. and see what your contract dictates. If it could get, say, first publication rights for the use in a picture book and nothing else, Mm -hmm. and then you're stuck with the picture book, and then you have to, you can probably buy merchandise rights from them if they're doing that. So you often negotiate for it. So check that out in your contract, and always sign a contract with your things. Are these royalty rights or just one in payment? Home? This is single payment. This is it's still usage a, rights. It's usage rights. Usage. So, however, you want to pay for the usage rights, whether it's a royalty base or it's a lump sum. It's just the permissions that you're buying because you're actually not buying artwork. If you wanna buy if you wanna buy the artwork and own the artwork, that is called universal rights and it costs a whole lot more. And that's why people who buy fine art paintings pay millions of dollars for that painting, because it's like this is my painting and I'm having all royalties to it and you can't sell prints of it and you can't paint another one that looks like it because it's mine and I'm buying it. When you buy uh universal rights, you shouldn't even really have to write the author's name on it. Like the artist mm-hmm. doesn't even have to be credited because you bought that; it's yours now. And technically, and, the artist can't use it anymore. And the right. artist can't use it to promote themselves either. But first oh, publication well, rights, yes. yeah. First publication rights is you have the right to firsties. You yeah. know, first it's like you're at a forum post. First, mm-hmm. I'm first one to have it, and then you put it out, and you can use it, but you can't resell those rights to someone mm-hmm. else for second publication rights or republication rights. That's my right to do so. And there's usually a an ending time for, um, for, like, if I'm selling a piece of artwork to a magazine, they have first publication rights for three years. And then after three years, I can sell it to a different magazine, but I can't sell it for the same amount I sold it to the first one, because first publication rights are gone, I'm now selling second. And that's why we're, on, like, stock image sites, you're paying ten bucks for it or whatever, that's because it's, like, mass distribution rights. Mm-hmm. Lots of other people can buy it. You're not buying exclusive rights to that artwork. You're just renting it for this one job. Yeah, that's However, kind of thing.
0: However, since you threw that out real quick, it is important to note if you're buying stock images, uh, you have to read the the uh, you know read the small print carefully mm-hmm. because not all of those can you use. Like you might be able to use it for your cover, but you can't then turn around and use that image any like for everything for t-shirt or, or yeah, or t-shirts or anything like that. It can also end up being that. uh, with some of the sites, you don't necessarily, and this is like Canva and some of the other creator sites, you don't actually own the full rights to the cover. So, you own you don't actually own the picture, so at any time that the the company decides that you violated this, because you only bought, say, 200 print copies of this image and you've printed now 300 of them, Uh, that's a violation of your contract, and the company can come in and pull their image which is your cover uh Uh, so always read the fine print stay with good sites that don't do that
4: you never want to have your face removed for legal reasons yes i've had that happen on my site i had to take down people's
2: pictures Um, just really quick i'm glad brad brought this up and then we do need to move off of illustration i'm just going to i was hoping brad you would cover everything so i wouldn't have to do the whole entire disclaimer here but i have to since i am also a paralegal I had to say, the following is not legal advice. If you seek legal advice, please find a lawyer who has passed the bar in your state or jurisdiction and also has um, a practice that practices the type of law in which you are looking at. Okay, that's to keep me out of jail, people. Um, the other thing is when what Jen was saying about the contract, make sure that you get everything in writing on that contract if you're working with somebody. To borrow the old joke from the legal field, uh, verbal agreement is worth the paper it's written on. Meaning, there ain't anything there, people. They can take you to court. Get the get it in writing. All right, Brad, I'm going to come to you, and then we need to move on. I, I want to hit promotion, because I have a feeling this episode may turn into a two-parter. <laughs> and I, know LeSean, well, can I was actually going to join.
0: So you've been talking about illustrators, but to yeah. be honest, when you started off with... Was all the ancillaries, which affects everybody, no matter who's doing all the stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, so, I was going to kick it over to that and exactly what uh-huh. are the ancillaries, and that is all the extra data that you need in order to have for your book. And you mentioned a bunch of them BISACS codes, keywords, uh-huh. taglines. Define those things. Uh, sure, yeah. Well, I figured we would when we got to them. Okay. Um, so, the BISAC code, we'll start with that because that's the one everyone's probably like, what? Um... So, these are codes that are used by the publishing industry to classify your novel. Uh, You don't need to worry about them nine times out of ten. Your publisher is the one who needs to worry about these things. However, if you're self-publishing, indie publishing, or, more importantly, like me, you're weird and you like to have a say in every little aspect of your book, you're going to send in BISAC codes to your publisher, whether they ask for them or not. Um, so what they are is essentially a series of codes that are used by the industry to classify different books in different genres and subcategories of that genre. So your book might be listed under fiction, which is super general, but that's too general because every book can go under fiction. So it might go under historical fiction set in the Victorian age. Okay, that's there's a bisect code for that. Uh, fantasy fiction... Uh, you know, with like, you know, high elves and stuff like that. That's another series you can go. Uh, I always love the one that is, uh, fancy, or historical fiction pirates, uh, which I always get tossed into usually, because I write about sky pirates and stuff like that, so, um, these are just little ways of classifying them. Uh, for the publisher, they're in, uh, the place they go to enter in all the catalog information. Uh, which is their distributor and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but these are not necessarily things you have to worry about. Where you have to worry about is keywords. Which, if you've created a website, done a YouTube video, anything well, like that, hashtags. Let's
2: stick with bicep for just right. a second. Let's say it's the same
0: thing. thing.
2: Okay, well, keywords and bisecos they are similar. They're similar, but they're not exactly the
0: same, right? They're, no, they're well, I mean, a bicep is different. a very specific thing that applies only to the distributing side of publishing. Okay. But so if you're an indie publisher, you need to know it because you're going to be asked for these. And this is where I'm going to go with it. First off, two questions. One, if,
2: okay, I'm going to borrow your book for a second, any, okay. of, your, any of your stories for the most part, Brad. You write Victorian, historical technically, but it's steampunk, so it's so it's science fiction fiction.
0: Okay, so, I'll, uh, so so my BISAC codes, if I remember correctly, for Iron Horseman are uh, YA, YA fiction, because that's a category unto itself. Uh-huh. Then there was historical fiction, um, and there's another classification underneath that that I'm not remembering exactly. Um, and then there was a fantasy, um, but it's like fantasy historical, not fantasy high. Okay. Um, and those are the three, you only get three BISAC codes. That's it. That answers the next um, question. So, you know, and these are, you're just going to pick them. If you're using KDP, mm-hmm. it's Amazon's keywords. It's the same thing. And now um, will code keywords. i Which is why I say that they're similar, because if you're using KDP, they don't ask you for BISAC codes. Uh, They ask you to help label them in where, you know, Amazon should put them. And you'll see those lists pop up at the bottom of the feed when you see that you're like 200 and something in historical fiction and 100 and something in books for teens or whatever. Uh, That breakdown. And then keywords are essentially the same. I'm going to get to your question in a second. BISAC codes... But it's just like anything else, you get a string of them, it's like any blog post or hashtagging you might do, so you're going to tag the key phrases that you need to know. So for me it would be Steampunk, Historical Fantasy, Fantasy, dragons, Sky Pirates, uh, Secret Societies, things like that, things that people might search for that are going to help classify your book. Yet again, this is something for the distributing side of publishing. Not necessarily for any of the other sites I'm gonna go catch this question that we left you. Oh, uh, so it is Kindle Di- KDP is Kindle Direct Publishing, which is Amazon's uh, publishing platform.
4: It's the new Create Space. It is yeah. the new
0: Create Space now. So you can now do print and e-publishing all through KDP. Hmm.
3: I haven't moved to the KDP, so it's going to be very interesting, but. As an indie publisher, you need to know the biceps. I don't know if they're going to change that in the no. KDP. They're not doing it in the KDP. No, no, they're
0: still doing it. It's just, it's the same as Amazon had before, so it's uh, the You have Amazon's to know what
3: you, what you put it in because that's how they chose what categories you went into. Yep. But if we're moving to KDP, hopefully it might skip that and make you, and you actually get to use the categories. The categories is how you make the best selling list.
2: Yeah. Ah, okay.
3: and if you don't have categories which a lot of indie authors don't put in because they don't know about that then they go out they, they book releases and they wondering how come they're not on any list it's because you haven't put the categories sometimes Amazon will slide you into different categories if you put those keywords he was saying about sometimes they don't and you have to call them on the phone and say hey I want to be in this category when I did my, my book my first book, it put me in the category of no problem. And in my second book, which was a coloring book, it didn't. I went up there and it just was the coloring book. i uh-huh. you know, you're freaking because it's released uh-huh. and you're, you're you're trying to make the best-selling list the first week and it's not there. So I called the person and he's like, oh, no problem. What would you like to be under? So that's where you have to do some research. You need to know where you want to be under. Because a lot of people go in there and put their stuff under different things just so they can make the best-selling list. But you, if you are true artist, you want to be under the correct list. So you want to go and do your research and find out what categories are you. You're steampunk? What's the categories for steampunk? So you just, you know, get into that category. Uh, a lot of people put their stuff under romance and that's it. But they're yeah. subgenre. So you want to make sure you're on the subgenre. So I did coloring books, but I also did social media because it's part of social media. So that puts me in a totally different category. You know, so you want to do your research on categories. They're very important, especially if you're interested in becoming a best selling author on Amazon. You know, those categories is what is how you get up in the list. And if you don't have categories, then you never make any list.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Brad and Kathleen, both of them, he came up first. Or let's uh, I was just gonna say real quick, uh, with uh, my my best one is a top ten break in with one of my short stories because mm-hmm. I came in in, like, number two on, like, uh, steampunk short stories, and was there for, like, a day and a half. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was off of just a couple of sales of my ebook short story. And then the best book I had was actually uh, not the best seller, but it was Iron Zulu, because Iron Zulu ended up doing books for teens set in Africa. And that hit me up to, I think, somewhere in the 40s. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was pretty amazing and kind of cool, but that's and that you know just that one category. Mm-hmm. And elsewhere, it's like two hundred or one hundred or something like that. You know, so you're it's amazing how specific those lists get. Yeah, no, yeah, and that's, that's just it. Right. That's specific. why you need to you specific. be specific. Yeah, yeah. Because if you're not specific about that, then you're going to be kind of floating in categories with a lot more
4: people. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. So, Brad, you had said that BISAC codes you can only have three. Um, mm-hmm. Is there a limit to the number of categories you can have? I think it's ten, but they usually most don't show up, like three I think show up on the actual page. Yeah. So it fluctuates. It depends on what that day is. Somebody bought something. How they search for you is how it goes in there. So they're looking for, what do you say? African American books of, of kids or something. Yeah. Somebody's searching for that, your book pops up in it and if they buy it, then you go up on the list. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's,
0: it's kind of fascinating the way it works. It's an mm-hmm. algorithm that, that they use, but it is really based more off of the keywords and stuff that you're using in Amazon, um, then and there are categories you'll choose, uh, but then Amazon also has their cat their keywords
4: they're using to plug you into this There was uh, one point when there was a book on Amazon that I was looking at that didn't have categories. I don't think, mm-hmm. and, and they asked what categories I would put it put it in or keywords. Okay, so that's, that's yeah, that's, that's probably
0: Amazon actually because that's not the author. Authors do this all the time where they don't enter this information because they don't know what it is or Mm -hmm. any number of reasons. Uh, And you'll see them where they're just not listed anywhere. Uh, And their rankings suffer because of it. Because then they're just in general with, I think, what, there's like 5,000, 7,000 books on Amazon right now or something like that. Uh, And if you're just in that, you have no chance. I mean, I think my highest book is uh, currently in the millions, uh, like 3 million or something like that because it's old and no one's buying it or something. Yeah,
2: so. And Kathleen, thank you for asking that question because I was waiting. <laughs> I wanted to ask it myself. So, yay! Hello when you and I think alike. Okay, so we've covered not in deep great details, but we've covered illustration, we've covered bisect codes, we've covered keywords. What about uh, metadata? I assume that's gonna be the same, falling into the same
0: area.
3: What is metadata though? Okay,
0: so metadata is actually the Front matter and back matter of your book. Ah, oh, uh-huh. see I'm wrong. Uh, Go for so it. yes, front matter and back matter is the stuff... Front matter is obviously the stuff that goes before the book. Before you start page one.
3: Like where are the title pages? The title page, the, the copyright, copyright page,
0: the, you know, dedications, all that good stuff. The quotes. Uh, and back matter would then be about the author, the acknowledgements, blurbs of the next book, questions, an index... Uh, things of that nature. All of that is classified under metadata. Now, metadata really falls under your ISBN numbers, your Library of Congress numbers, your other numbers that go into these books that uh, you know people care about. Um, and all of that is... Really, this all goes down to the publishing side. So if you're an author and you're hearing all of this stuff thrown at you, most of this you don't have to care about. If you're an indie publisher... Welcome to the world of hell that comes after your writing.
4: Um,
0: Because you're going to have to learn all of this. And it's a crash course in publishing. I highly recommend it. Uh, Just figure out what all of this stuff does. Try and do it before you publish your book. Or, like me, while you're publishing your book. uh, And, you know, turning into a publisher. So um, There's a lot to learn, but it's not really that confusing. ISBN numbers are pretty self-explanatory. They're ID numbers for books. Uh, you get them from a company, you buy them in blocks, and uh, you go from there. Um, you don't necessarily need them if you're just publishing through Amazon and stuff, though. That's, yeah, know, whatever. Uh, look into ASIN, ASIN numbers, which is Amazon's uh, ISBN number.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, check into those. So that's all good stuff that you're going to have to learn about. But that's just a way of identifying the book around and through different people. Same thing with the Library of Congress numbers. Um, the other metadata is going to be the publishing stuff, which is like this book cannot be reprinted, you know, the little blurbs and the you know warnings about what happens if you violate copyright. Um there are tons of templates out there. I recommend stealing them and changing them to suit your own needs. Uh it's a wonderful way of getting all of that.
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <I ran>. <laughs> yep, <laughs> exactly. So um These are really, you know, kind of a whole grouping of things that just get lumped into what is metadata, which is all of that stuff that goes into the front of the book. So open a book, another book, not your book, and look at what they've done, what all is there. Um, You're going to need your websites, you're going to need your publishing dates, your company you're using, what year you publish this book in, all of that good stuff. It's all the front matter. Uh, and then what you really need to worry about as an author and what all of this kind of comes from is You're gonna have to come up with the quote at the front of the book You're gonna have to come up with the dedication of who you want to dedicate this book to um, You're the one that's got to come up with the acknowledgements at the back of the book and write all that You know jazz of who you want to thank for helping you get where you got uh, And then the about to the author section that's also on you um, so once you have got all of that put together uh, and questions too. Most of the time, if you've got uh, if you're writing a young piece like a middle grade, you have to come up with those questions. Uh, the publisher isn't really going to be in the mood to do all that work. Um, and then, if you really want to be nice, and you're doing a ton of footnoting and indexing, that is also work you should do yourself, or more importantly, hire somebody else to do. I recommend that uh, because that is a pain in the butt, and no publisher is going to want to do that either. The door.
1: I was just going to uh, look at it from the point of view of a traditionally published person and the, what they call ancillaries that you're expected to come up with for them. And this does not include most of the metadata that no. you were talking about. Uh, as part of the actual manuscript itself, that would be your acknowledgments, your forward if you have any, that kind of thing. But what they call ancillaries are typically things that are geared toward promotion. And it includes things like, with very strict word limits, catalog copy. All the big houses put out a catalog. And for that copy, you have 100 to 125 words, and that is it. And that is what they're going to send to libraries and to distributors and the like that will... uh, be looking at these very brief descriptions. So believe me, those are important, folks. And then, very important also, your back cover or inside flat copy, which is what your reader is going to look at when he picks up the book. He's going to look at the back cover, and it it might have blurbs on it, which is a different thing that you have to get, but it might tell something about the book trying to intrigue the reader to read it. That's what the uh, inside flat does on hardcover coffee. Also, you want to have a good bio that makes people like you, right? It should be interesting. It should yeah. be interesting mm-hmm. and should be revealing of something about your personality and about your voice as a writer. Those are all very important things. Good luck with that, by the way. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> <an excerpt. laughs> They're also going to ask you for an excerpt. And I'm not sure why they really want that, except I think that might be the only thing the art department actually reads. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> sure. But they will ask you for an excerpt of about 200 words, 175 to 200 words. They will ask you for a log line kind of thing where you have a one sentence, pithy, wonderful summary that you could agonize over for hours. Believe me, you want to have that. And uh, once again, for the art department, they'll usually ask you for a synopsis of the entire book because nobody is going to read it except the uh, the uh, the uh, developmental and copy editors that have already read it and uh, gone on to something else. And they will ask you for a list of things that you might want to have on the cover. And you should have that anyway for your illustrator if you're going to be an indie publisher. So these are the things that are typically called ancillaries. So uh,
3: in the PanCon um had someone that was talking about what the the, the metadata that mm-hmm. you have in the back of your book and he was like she said, you need a bio, right? Make sure that there's a bio there. You want to make sure that you have a link to your mailing list or your newsletter. A lot of people put it in there tight, but these Specifically said, make sure it's hyperlinked if you're using e Yeah, if because you're doing e you
0: should hyperlink it. Hyperlink because you
3: want them to click and come to it. And if, you, if you're if an author who has more than one book and you have your listing, that each one of them is hyperlinked to be able to be purchased. Don't just make a list. Make sure that the, is hyperlinked. So the, that metadata is very important because people, once they enjoy a delicious book, they want the next book. And so you don't want them going searching for it. You want them to click it and buy
4: right then and there. I like that. A delicious book.
2: (laughs) Yes. Quick question to everybody that's involved on blurbs: Who should you try to get blurbs from?
0: The biggest author you know.
2: In but okay, (laughs) so so, okay, (laughs) let let, let me me play with that one here because knowing where I'm at, let's say I finally get a book out there. I know, stop laughing. Um, how things have been.
4: We're not laughing. We believe in you.
2: I'm laughing then. Um, and I write a science fiction thriller. I should caveat what I said, by the way. I'm, I'm probably where I'm going. Should I ask, um, let's see here, Angie? You well, know, Yes, Andy actually, Fox you should.
0: And So here's your... the thing. Okay. Uh, yes, you're right. You should get the biggest author in the genre of which you write.
2: Thank you. Uh, You're you're very
0: true with that. And more importantly, you should get other authors, not just the biggest people you know, uh, any author you know, uh, in the genres for which you write to blurb your book. Um, Specifically, if you can get those blurbs before the book comes out, because then they can get added into the distributor, catalog copy, and they're official, and they're not added on to Amazon, and Amazon can't touch them. And they also propagate out to Goodreads and everywhere else. So... Blurbs are a wonderful, wonderful thing, especially if you get them before the book drops. Here's the thing. So you dropped Angie Fox's name. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to start this out. that Yes, if you had a book out, you should totally try and get Angie Fox to be on it. And here's why. Because it doesn't necessarily matter that Angie Fox is not necessarily writing the same type of book that you are, mm-hmm. but it's going to say Angie Fox, New York Times bestselling author of, and it's going to list her series, and that's all anyone's going to read.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So no one's going to care who Angie Fox is. They might not even read the full Angie Fox. They might think it's Anne Fox or something. All they're really going to read is New York Times bestselling author. And that is book. what you would want on the back of your book. Uh, so yes, okay. in that sense, uh, I always suggest going after the biggest name that you know. Um, you can also send that book off. So if you want to be brave and bold and be like, you know, I've written a great schoolhouse wizarding book, I'm sending it to JK and see if she'll freaking say something. Because you never know, she just might. And if she loves your book and she gives you the, Oh my god, this book's so great, it reminded me of Harry Potter.
2: <laughs> Boo! <laughs>
0: you know, like, had the best day ever. So, and
2: that's a horrible J.K. impression, I thought. Yeah, please <laughs> do. Um, Lashana and I both shot up first, so I'm going to let her go first. Ladies first. Cause...
3: Well, I teach about building relationships. Mm-hmm. So you should be building that relationship now with Angie Fox. If you don't know Angie Fox, so you don't go into her box and she goes, I don't know who the heck this exactly. is. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. start building that relationship with the people. And, and you know, and when you meet people, you be surprised somebody will say, I had a whole bunch of people tell me, yeah, I want to I wanna do a blur for you. And it's like, oh, uh-huh. yeah. you know, and they say yes, they want to do And then life gets in the way and you don't get that. So you want to, you know, get your top 20 people and contact them now. Before the book comes out, before it goes to yeah. editing and all that stuff, and let them you know it is, it's an art copy, it's really crazy, but I would really appreciate your opinion, uh, you know, a tiny blurb on it, and and keep your fingers crossed, and maybe they'll send it back, you know.
1: There's if you
3: wait till the book is about to get ready, you're going to rush them. So you want to give them at least six months to say, if they read your book or whatever. they love it, then they're going to, you know, come back with it. But you don't want to wait till the last minute to get a blurb. Because that's holding you up, and right. then you're 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 frustrating a person who might take time to read your book.
0: I will say this quick caveat to uh, what was just said, on both my part and your part: uh, there are authors who are not allowed to read books uh, then- due to their contracts. So there are New York Times best-selling authors and stuff like that who have contracts with big houses, and they are not allowed to touch your book until it's an arc until there's a printed arc that says not for sale, you know, advanced reader copy, uh, all that kind of stuff. So then at which point you can hand that book out and people can blurb it and give you blurbs and stuff like that. But fair warning, uh, totally send your book out as early as you can to people like me who are not New York Times bestselling authors and have no contract that says that. (laughs) Uh, But if you do, or if you're going after somebody big, they're going to need that printed arc just as a... It saves their butt, and they can't be sued for possibly using some idea that you now think was their, ears or whatever. Uh, there are all kinds of legality and liability issues, which is why they're told not to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a thing, so just know that somebody might turn you down until you have an ARC. Okay, Kathleen, you had your... dovetail. tell them. I'm going to come back with mine. Oh, no.
3: He, I wanted them to define art, but it has been done. Okay, perfect.
2: <laughs> so here's my question, and you, you hit on a topic, Brad, that... Is been, how should I say, a burr under the saddle of, for a lot of authors, and that is Amazon comments. Amazon was, I know they kind of reversed a little bit, I don't know the full details, but they were, if they found somebody commenting on your book and that person had to be on your friends list on Facebook, they were taking these down. Goodreads. Goodreads, right? In, like, like
0: if they were a friend of yours on Goodreads, Goodreads if we were friends and stuff, that was a really big red flag for Amazon. Okay, um, so let me let me. Facebook was by. the thing, though. So
2: borrowing Angie Fox, yeah, actually, I know Angie and we're friends <laughs> on Facebook. I don't know if we are friends on Goodreads, but let's pretend we are. And I've gotten <laughs> <laughs> Angie to write this board. How how do I prevent
0: Amazon? Pulling that one down, you talked about get it to your distributor. Okay, uh, the reason I say that so that everyone's got a catalog, we've talked about this. You've mm-hmm. got a distributor if you're Amazon, if Amazon's your distributor, you still have this option. Okay, that's um, I'm doing. You can enter in these comments, uh, so you enter in the name of the comment and the person and everything like that. That then gets propagated mm-hmm. out to everywhere that book goes. Um, usually you're adding them to, I think it's my distributor who I added to. I don't think it's my advice. Or I don't think it's the ISBN. Okay. But I think there's an option to do it at Bowker, too. I don't know. Don't quote me on that one. What's Bowker? Mm. Uh, sorry, not Bowker. Yeah, Bow. no. it's Circus? No, Baker and Taylor. Wow. Ah. Yeah. no? I, I had it really <laughs> with Bowker.
4: Ingram.
0: No, where you buy your, uh, where you yeah. buy the ISBN. Yeah, that's it. So, it's Bowker, or Bowker, whatever it is. Spell it. Uh, B-O-W-K-E-R. Mm-hmm. Um and I think you can add it in there, too. But more importantly, it's going to be with your distributor, um, which for me is Spark. And uh, I enter them there. Amazon can't get rid of those. The ones that Amazon gets rid of are the, you know, purchased by, you know, and then you can make, leave a comment. Now, if it is a verified purchase of the book. So even if, say, David buys my book, and it's a verified purchase that Amazon knows, and he makes a comment, Amazon will leave that there, because Amazon knows you bought the book. However, if you just go on and comment, oh, this is a good book, you should totally buy it, and you have not purchased it through Amazon, and we are friends on Goodreads and Facebook and places like that, then Amazon's going to go, oh, this is just a buddy who jumped on and said, ta-da, you should buy this book, and then it pops it off. And that's where a lot of people had issues because a lot of people, I mean, this was a thing. You had street Mm -hmm. teams, you know, where it's not just saying friends. I mean, think about people on your Facebook page who aren't necessarily your good friend. Mm -hmm. They're a colleague in a writing community or a reading community. And now Amazon's going, wait, you guys are too close of friends. It doesn't matter that they're a huge reader person and a huge reader blogger. We've just now taken their review off. Big to do about it. There are a lot of people. You can fight it. You can do all this weird stuff. Um, It's less of a thing now. It still happens. But um, they're just really looking for verified purchasers.
3: I have a question about that. Uh, Facebook has the ability to have, like, a coupon code so you can give people a free book. Would that count as a verified purchase?
0: Uh, maybe I maybe I don't know how that. that would quite work. I, um, the verified purchasing thing is strictly through Amazon.
3: Yeah, but I so wish, I
0: don't know how like I, Amazon categorizes beyond that.
3: I wish uh, George was here because he yeah. might know. If I it's a review copy, they they still kind of get a little fishy with it, mm. Mm. and they and that has been an issue because you are not supposed to be buying the book. It's supposed to be a, a copy that they send to you as a review copy, right? And I know as me as a uh, when I used to do for store bag, they, they've done this a couple of times. When I used to put my reviews on there, they would cut them out. So I stopped doing it because, you know, you I'm doing 10 or 15 reviews and you leave them. What's the point? Right. You know, so I stopped doing them a couple of years ago. And um, now they're doing a, they're having it. If you didn't buy through them, they're not keeping the review. They're saying it's not a verified copy. Mm-hmm. It, I had a friend that actually, he wrote a really nice review for me and it was up. One day I read it, because I was able to copy it and see what he said, and then I went back and it was gone. And then he came back and he said, well, you know, this was the autographed copy I bought from you. did not I didn't buy it from Amazon. And I said, oh, that's why they took it down. Mm-hmm.
2: Which is one of the negatives, unfortunately, of buying a book from, like, at a convention mm-hmm. or a book fair or wherever, because how can you... Con- I've got the book. I've got... Actually... Everybody who is sitting here who has got a book out, minus Kathleen, because I haven't gotten that book that's got a short story in it yet. Keyword yet that's going to come. (laughs) I've got everybody's book. At least one copy of books. All of you have signed them. I've gotten them from you face to face in some method. Well except for you. I did Lashonda, I did get your through online even though I knew you. And so here I buy a book. Amazon I wanna leave you a comment because a, of course, I know how important that is. But B, let's pretend I'm not involved in the industry at all. I just want to leave you a comment, and Amazon takes it down. I don't know. I assume Barnes and Noble does the same thing.
0: Not really. Not, not really. They, they okay, leave it alone. It's just an Amazon okay. thing.
2: Okay. How do you fight that, or do you fight that?
0: Okay. First off, you don't fight it unless you really want to. Uh, more than likely, the average Joe who posts the review is not going to have a problem. Um, And the reason I say that is because they're more trying to target other readers and other writers who are, like, there are communities out there of little conclaves of writers who over-saturate themselves with their own publicity. And, you know, they help each other out really, you know, to an extent that is vaguely not Mm -hmm. truthful. Uh, and, you know, I don't want to throw it to anyone under the bus or anything like that. They've got their marketing plan or whatever. But because of that, that's one of the reasons why Amazon is doing that. Because Amazon wants 50 reviews from people who read the book and thought it was awesome. They don't want 30 reviews from awesome readers who bought the book and 20 reviews from your personal friends who are just there trying to beef your numbers up. Uh, and you have to understand that some of these are really egregious, where like somebody's posting like ten thousand reviews in a day, mm-hmm. and that's physically impossible, mm-hmm. you know. So like Amazon's really going after those big crazy people, less so the average yeah, Joe. Uh, however, the if if this does happen to you, the greatest thing you can do if you bought a book is is go on Amazon and, and give me a review. Uh, that's it. it goes directly to my visibility and all of that kind of stuff. So go there first. But second to that is to go on social media and snap a photo of you and that book.
2: Mm, There you go.
0: Because beyond the ability for for Amazon or whoever to have that wonderful blurb, we don't actually read blurbs. We read how many blurbs you have. Mm -hmm. And that's how we make a judgment. So... If you're like me and you've only got a few blurbs on your book, then no one cares and no one's really going to pay attention. But if you have 200 or 300 blurbs for your book or five-star ratings, Mm -hmm. somebody's going to pay attention to that book. So that is important. However, if you go on social media and you check out Iron Horseman, Brad R. Cook, or something along those lines, if you're trying to find an author, the first thing that's going to pop up are those pictures. Pictures of people smiling and holding the book and that is almost a better selling technique than having anything else and every big author i know paulo Cojo, big shout out to you you'll never hear it but it's okay Um, (laughs) huge he does this immensely and i'm always amazed at the amount of people who take pictures of them reading a paulo Cojo book and then post it to his instagram or just post oh, cool. it, and then I'm in the Paulo Coho, like, you know hashtag, and I'm seeing all of these posts. So his latest book, <coughs> Hippie, total shout-out. Uh, there are so many pictures of people reading this book. It's a huge thing to do, and it becomes something on social media that can generate its own publicity itself, where each one of those posts can now get liked, uh, and as more and more come, and as they spread out over days... You've now had two weeks worth of advertising that you didn't pay anything for. And so that is probably, if if you don't get an Amazon one up there, snap a photo of the book. Doesn't have to be you and the book, just has to be the book or whatever. But it is a great way of getting online advertising.
3: That right there is the best tip ever because <laughs> you sometimes you don't have time to read a book, but you get a picture. Nope. <laughs> you take that picture and you put it out there and somebody has not... They might not read blurbs, but they see the picture and yep. they go, you read that book. What's that book about? And they write, I I write down titles all day long and I'm looking on the library or I'm looking on Amazon to see what the book is about when somebody mentions it. And so my favorite thing is for somebody to tag me and say they bought my book. Now I know they're a social butterfly. Yay. You mm-hmm. <laughs> know, and then of course I'm going to put it on my Instagram, I'm going to put it on Facebook, I'm going to put it all over the world and they're famous themselves.
4: <laughs> exactly. Yep.
2: Excellent. Well, we are actually almost at the hour. So, yeah, this is definitely turning into a two-parter. The original scheduled um, next um, podcast will be postponed and as we continue with this one. So, everybody, tune in next week for yet more interesting topics. In this case here, especially on the nitty-gritties of publishing your book. Thank you for listening. Please like us on whatever platform you listen to it on. And speaking of comments, please leave comments. You can also contact us by writing rightpackradio at windingtrailsmedia.com if you have questions, comments, or have ideas for topics on the show. Take care. Bye-bye. The new theme songs for Right Pack Radio were written and performed by Meredith Tate. All copyrights remain with her.